Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. All right, guys, welcome back to another uh, episode of the Die Living Podcast. Your host today is going to be George Brionis of uh, uh, Head of Human Performance for Softly. Um, today we got on a special guest who is it's George Scheffler. I said that correct that time. Uh, pre, pre-show, I was uh, fucking it all up. But he is the head coach for Coastal Athlete Program. Um, and, you know, I talked to this guy poof, about a week ago, and we actually had an hour-long conversation about the tactical athlete along with kind of how we see uh, how the tactical athlete should be training. Um, and the great thing is we're pretty much on the same lines of how we see or how we should see them train. So it's going to be a very good episode. Um, so that's one thing that I'm looking for today is talking and getting into his brain. But the crazy thing, though, is he doesn't work just with tactical athletes. He works with your everyday athlete from uh, people who are trying to get into the ocean and get more comfortable in there. And he'll go in depth of what that's about along with, you know, he has a lot of experience in the tactical athlete realm and he's actually utilized um, and talked a little bit about different about the tactical athlete. You know, he doesn't think a tactical athlete is just your military LEO firefighters, but it's that tactile athlete um, who's out there running ultra marathons, who's doing triathletes, who's or triathlons, who are doing bike races, mountain biking, you name it. If you're outdoors and you're an adventure athlete, um, you know, this is how he comes together and helps build that mindset so forth. So George, it's all you do. Thanks for coming on to the show, man. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, uh, George. Um, to make it a little easier, if you want to call me Shep, uh, that might yeah. make it a little easier and us calling each other George. Uh, so just a little bit about Coastal Athlete Program. Um, Coastal Athlete Program is a fairly new company. We used to be called Apex Predator Athletics. And the primary goal of our organization is to increase the survivability of our athletes and protect natural resources that we train in through education and exploration. So what that's basically me trying to say is we're taking our fitness outside the gym, taking it out into the state parks, out into the, the national parks, and really teaching our athletes how to use the available resources without being destructive to the environment. So we're trying to kind of accomplish two things at the same time. Uh, Coastal Athlete Program was founded to provide a scalable and affordable class uh, in the Monterey Bay area to increase water confidence and increase awareness about the need for coastal conservation. We meet twice a week. And just to get this part of the pitch out of the way earlier, you can follow us on Instagram at Coastal Athlete Program. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Coastal Athlete Program. Or you can check out our website, coastalathleteprogram.com. Um, that's pretty much it for the sales pitch. As far as my background, uh, I am a prior service uh, veteran. I was in the United States Navy. I was a surface search and rescue swimmer. I uh, deployed twice, uh, once on a frigate, once on a cruiser. I also served on a VBSS team as the breacher and medic. Uh, so since getting out of the military, I got my bachelor's of science in exercise science kinesiology at California State University, Monterey Bay. While I was there, I was the strength conditioning coach for a year for the women's water polo team uh, and launched APA and started offering a bunch of different water survival and military preparation programs in and around the area. And uh, actually, fairly recently, since the last time you and I spoke, uh, I'm excited to officially come out and say I've started working with Cabrillo College to help augment their strength training program for their athletics teams and uh, specifically working with water polo. So... It's been a really awesome and exciting opportunity since leaving the military to get to work with the up-and-coming student-athlete, the up-and-coming future military athlete, and then because of our location to Defense Language Institute and Naval Postgraduate down in Monterey, we also get to work with experienced military athletes that are coming back for follow-on training or higher level of certification uh, before their next rotation. So. It's, uh, we're in this really great central area, and, and our big emphasis this whole time has always been on bringing everyone together and, and trying to, uh, look, there's no way around it. We live, we live in a very, very uh, liberal and, and hippie-oriented part of the country. Like, it's, it's really important for veterans. Like, we all surf, right? Everybody likes to surf. Everyone likes the beach. Like, finding those commonalities, get people training next to each other, and then say, you'd never believe it, but that guy's a cop or that guy's an EMT, or that guy's in the Army. So it's been a really, really fun experience. 
Hell yeah, dude. One thing that I'm going to go ahead and come out and ask right away, dude, was how did you keep yourself healthy as a rescue swimmer and then through your whole time in the military? Because uh, we just recently got done talking with a couple of dudes that were uh, running all of the, re uh, the rescue swimmer schools and they reached out to Softly talking about, you know, what can we do uh, to help with um, strengthening these athletes without having them uh, be injured because they were seeing a lot of lower back problems, um, you know, from sitting inside the airplane or whatever else or riding on the boats. And, you know, one thing that we really came out with, you know, was something was like, hey, first off, you guys obviously are not creating the proper trunk stability and trunk strengthening programs to help them with anti-rotational and rotational work. You know, so it kind of brings me to this, man. It's awesome to see you doing all these things, dude. It's, it's awesome to cool and great to see other veterans um, doing big things on, on a small level to help in general, right? Um, so kind of take me there, dude, with, you know, what you did to keep yourself healthy uh, to, keep, to keep performing and still be healthy to this day. You know, uh, that's one of those things that everyone's looking for all the time. Absolutely. Well, the first thing to say is I didn't keep myself healthy. Um, my lower back actually herniated on the very first day of surface rescue swimmer school. Uh, so I had to complete the entire pipeline and my entire deployment uh, in an injured status, uh, an unreported quote unquote injury. Um, so I would say that the biggest thing that I think needs to change in terms of the, the way that we're training rescue swimmers is we need to teach them about active recovery and mobility and about that 24 seven element of the fitness. Um, you know, it, it, there's this big pride on how tough the PT session can be or how brutal the pool session can be. And there's something to be said for the esprit de corps that that returns. But at the same time, if you're not teaching these guys, like how to use a foam roller, how to get with a lacrosse ball into that bicep, you know, to, to reduce the, the probability of shoulder injuries. Like, and, and the other thing that I would recommend is start keeping track. You know, I was really surprised when I first got out of the military to find out that, that we really don't track the long-term health of athletes that graduate from different style selection or, or you know, high-risk training schools. That seems like the kind of information that would be really pertinent to us because if everyone's getting plantar fasciitis at the end of a, a training pipeline, Maybe there's something that we can be doing proactively to reduce those kind of injuries and reduce the number of days lost, uh, you know, of combat readiness. Gotcha. Yeah, that's huge. You know, we talk about combat readiness all the time. Um, guys are always, hey, I need to be combat ready. I need to be operational ready. And, you know, what does operational ready even mean? Right. Like a lot of guys are like, you know, what does it really mean? Well, you know, I have a deployment in five months, so I got to get operational ready. It's like, well, why haven't you been operational ready all year round? For instance, treat it just like a professional athlete. A professional athlete comes out of their season and goes into a uh, retraining and recovery phase, right? It's kind of how we want to look at it. And then we have a transition week and we can go into our first phase of our off season, you know, where we focus on retraining movement patterns, strengthening the smaller muscles, and then going into another off season, depending on how long the season is, preseason, in season. Um, all those kinds of things, you know, and I, it's funny cause I've heard this. I actually just had a, a conversation on, a, on Instagram yesterday it was like, Oh yeah, I'm doing this program that's helping me get, um, operational ready. And I'm like, okay, so what is, it, it sounds, it sounds sexy. Like if I, <laughs> I can throw that to anybody, be like jump on my programming right now, it's going to get you operational ready when you should be on a program that's going to be operational ready 24 seven. Um, not just in the gym, but outside of and creating awareness and accountability for that athlete, you know? So that's where I was coming with that with you with on that one next too. So, well, you know, one of the things I think that, uh, that I've only kind of recently started to understand is that student athlete and the military athlete actually have way more in common than I think we ever gave them credit. Okay. The majority of the time you're not deployed in the military, you're either retraining, recertifying, or at a new school altogether. Yep. Either way, like nobody gets home from deployment and just has nothing for six months. Nobody can just spend eight hours a day in the gym. Like you might be able to, but it's going to come at your professional readiness in another area. And what we're doing is supposed to augment our jobs, not take away from. So I think uh, like that whole concept of teaching both organizations, both the military and the student athlete, the importance of time management and, and that whole concept of the 24 hour, seven day a week athlete. And that's one thing I think softly has done a really good job of is, is reinforcing with the athletes that you only are with us for an hour, two hours a day. Like that is so little of this process. Like if anything, this is your chance to take risks because you have supervision. We need you to be conservative and doing all the right stuff between sessions to be ready. So, but I totally agree with this, this 
operational readiness. Like I, I get from people a lot. Uh, I want to be like fighting fighter ready. I want to be ready to like get in a fight tomorrow. And it's like, well, if you look at professional fighters, that's, there's like a really complicated system for how they train. And one thing yeah. that we're seeing in MMA now that's starting to get more and more popular, especially guys like Cowboy Cerrone. I don't know if you're a Joe Rogan fan. I'm a huge Joe Rogan fan. Yeah, like Joe Rogan. Yeah, so we're hearing this big push towards focusing on developing skill work and not doing heavy sparring between sessions. Yep. Same basic thing is true for the military athlete. And, and we had a brief conversation last week about mental toughness and how that's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Like if you're in here and smashing yourself and like next week you need to get rotated out, you need to fill a spot, you need to augment a ship or a team somewhere and you can't do that, like that's a, that's a dick move. <laughs> like, yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Definitely. That's not really in line with, with what we would expect out of you and especially since the government and your team have already invested so much in you. So maintaining that, that focus and never getting so self-obsessed on – individual performance that you recognize that the individual can accomplish nothing without full team readiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's something that we actually, you know, utilize with Softlead as a company. Um, You know, El Jefe, my boss, uh, but a very good friend of mine is a best friend of mine. Also, we're all super close. Just did a podcast with combat flip flops and he even put it out talking about, yeah, yeah. Um, It was not the elk hunt one, but the one he did with combat flip flops, he did on theirs. And he talked about, it was a 12 minute podcast, but he talked about how, it's not just one person in the company that's making this company grow. It's everybody together. And it's the same thing with how we look at training the military athlete, the student athlete, the civilian in general is, you know, it's developing skills so that those skills are honed in so that when you are time to go faster or it's time when the, when it hits the fan, those skills have been developed where you don't have to no longer think about them. Yeah. So yeah, our water, the water polo team, uh, Cabrillo that I'm working with right now, we had a, a little bit of a breakdown in a tournament last weekend of team communication. And these guys, these guys lost big to a team that they should have destroyed. And they played way close to two teams that are significantly better, like a division above them. And so we ran all of these, these drills this week and we were constantly trying to reinforce with these guys. Like you have to be looking to help each other. Because if you're not looking to help each other, everyone loses. Like, I understand that you want to score. I understand that you don't want to be scored on. But someone has to be scored on. This isn't a game of shutouts. Like, kind of really breaking that, that back. And it's really awesome because I think as you attest to from the community that you are a part of, you never really see what people, what people are capable of until they're willing to put their own individual boundaries aside for the sake of, of you know, seeing what we can do. So that, that's when it gets really exciting. Yeah. That's, that's funny. You say that man is like, uh, our deployment in 2010 in Afghanistan, we were known as the black diamonds. Uh, we're first recon battalion and first force. And we were out there and we were known as the black diamonds cause that's what we are. And we actually were the first, uh, unit. And I've talked about this before on the podcast. We were the first unit to come back without any KIAs. We had wounded in action, but no KIAs for an OEF. And the cool thing about all that was just the main thing that I took out of that. We took care of the guy to the left and right of us so that we could come home because of the guy to the left and right of us. They're taking care of the guy to the left and right of them. You're always going to be covered and taken care of, but you're still pulling your weight. And, it, and it's funny as it comes back into the private sector also, not just in the military sector and to everyone else. And it's funny, man, is everyone's out there for a dog eat dog world, right? It's, it's just how it is. We see it in every day, especially we see it in strength conditioning now. There's oh, yeah. coaches out there. There are new coaches that are coming up. And I had this conversation with Mike Bergner, who was one of my mentors, who everyone knows who Coach, Ber- who Coach Bergner is, the Bergner warm-up. If you don't, then check him out. But one thing he told me was it, was it was the most simplest thing in the world was this. He's like, you know, those who are okay with sharing their knowledge are comfortable with spreading the knowledge to others, right? Because of the fact that there's guys out there who are very new coaches who are thinking they, they're learning all these new things. And I'm not going to lie, I've been there, and I'm pretty sure you've been there. And we, we, it's we, tough business. Yeah, it's a tough business. We've all been there. And then all of a sudden I learned as I started sharing my knowledge with others, you know, it started making it that much better, right? And I was like, okay, cool. And that's something I learned with, you know, some of my other mentors, you know, and Brian McKenzie said the best on that one podcast we did with him, you know, all we're doing is handing off a key to help open a door to their new experiences and their new life, which is completely true. Um, you know, so talk enough. I know we talk about this all the time. We can sit here and talk about mental toughness. We can talk about yeah, how this yeah, all goes. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the stuff, dude, what, what really caught my interest on your business on your business pitch was increased survivability, right? Um, and what are some of the key factors that you utilize with increasing survivability? Not just like taking care of the environment, but the athlete in general, right? 
Um, we talked about this too last week, you know, when we look at it, not only skills, but recovery protocols and, and creating awareness and accountability for yourself so you, that you understand to have that survivability, you know, what are your approaches that you do with that in general? Well, I think the first thing that we, we should do is identify what the primary threat is, right? And in this case, we're going to talk about, when we talk about water confidence, we're talking about drowning because it's either the fear of drowning or the mistakes that you make in the course of drowning and like the loss of consciousness that ultimately lead to loss of life. So there's, water is really tricky. There are psychological influences like aquaphobia and hydrophobia, but there's also physical influences. Um, not everybody has the same response. Uh, like even though we're all mammals and we all have a dive reflex, not everybody is as comfortable with pressure through the ears. Some people can't clear their ears. Uh, the different depths of the water affect people differently. Uh, sinus pressure can be really uncomfortable, as well as the fact that if you make a mistake underwater, your instinct is to uh, inspire your lungs, which fills them with water, which actually exposes you to significant pathogen risks because your lungs are not designed to be filtering in that way. So, you know, when we kind of look at this whole body thing, it's really easy to understand why people are scared before you bring in the fact that we're in the heart of the red triangle and consistently have great whites you know, spotted in the areas that we routinely practice what we do in. So I think that the, the biggest message I try to teach everyone in Coastal Athlete or, or a, a seminar or anything is that uh, what is the difference between the person drowning in the water and the rescue swimmer? These are the exact same hazards. If the water's on fire, if there are sharks, whatever it is, it's all there. But the state of mind of one person is what allows them to have the composure to effectively keep those fine motor skills. Kind of like, I hate to bring this back to mental toughness, yeah. but certainly this comes to um, mental control and the ability to maintain composure in adverse situations. So we start off there by, by helping each individual athlete identify what it is that's their struggle. We had one guy come to us, he's uh, currently in the dive, uh, he's currently actually in dive school, and uh, he came to us, he had never, uh, been in the ocean really extensively. He'd like played in it once or twice, but he was from Iowa. Wow. And uh, you have a guy from Iowa. This guy's clearly not growing up surfing or, or, or doing any of those activities. Uh, and, and in the beginning, I think the biggest obstacle for him was, was touching seaweed, which a lot of people look past. If you're like me and you grew up, you know, surfing and lifeguarding and hanging out at the beach, Seaweed's just a fact of life. Like it's the stuff that you throw on your cousins when they're asleep to like gross them out. Um, but if you've never stuck your hand out and felt something slimy or kind of spiky or something like that. Especially in the ocean. Yeah, exactly. And now we have these kelp fields where entanglement is a legitimate issue. Guys are swimming with jet fins. Um, it's really, I can tell you from personal experience, it's very easy to get uh, wrapped up and pulled down. So we, we try to work with each individual athlete, identify what it is that they're afraid of. Uh, and then from there, we do controlled exposure, right? So we'll take them to, there's a variety of different beaches that we use around the Bay. Uh, we offer classes in the North Bay and Santa Cruz area, as well as down in Monterey. And depending on the season, whether it's a North or South swell, that will influence whether or not it's going to be a very difficult beach. So we bring experts there or a beginner beach, in which case, you know, we'll bring the people who are a little bit newer to the process. Uh, that's like more like the triathlete or the military athlete who's not from, you know, the water, yeah. the water background, like guys from Nebraska, just, just throwing it out there. If you're from Nebraska, hit us up. It's beautiful. Come visit. <laughs> um, so when we recognize that, that, that drowning is the primary thing that we're trying to make people aware of, uh, we have to identify how they get there. The first is through physical exhaustion. Um, okay. But that is less dangerous than mental exhaustion. Uh, we also talk about shallow water blackouts. We don't spend too much time on them at this point, mostly because until we have the right insurance, uh, we don't want to mess around with uh, taking people past that point. But we always, always, always begin and end every class with our emergency protocols. I mean, I, I stole this straight from the military. We have an emergency action plan. That's awesome. Uh, we have an evacuation plan because the fact is, is, we are, we are doing things in the safest way possible, but we are still in the middle of the red triangle. Yeah. So no matter how well things go, things can still go wrong. Yeah. So uh, once we've identified all those different things and we've brought them into a controlled exposure, then we start ramping it up. So for our dive school guys before they left, one of their final swims was a two-mile swim. 
in jet fins. Um, so if you, I mean, you, you have, oh, yeah. but for people who have worked with jet fins, but only worked with them in the pool or in a short period, like, yeah, fin helps until about a half mile in and then it becomes a seven to eight pound weight on your foot. Uh, and they got to be exposed to things like chafing. Uh, we usually have our guys swim in the surf zone. So they're regularly battered with surf. So they're breathing a little bit of water here and there getting pinned to the bottom. And the whole time I'm there, uh, you know, other, other coaches of mine are there. And the idea is that the first time you get drowned, you don't want that to be when you're in a DOR situation. You know, you don't want that to be when there isn't a lifeguard standing next to you when you're surfing by yourself, you know, at, at 26th Avenue on a Tuesday. So it, it, I, I, this is kind of me, me talking for a while about this, but when it comes to hydrophobia and aquaphobia, the number one way to get over it is, is progressive and monitored exposure. Yeah. Right? Like that, that's the only way through it. And if you love the coastal lifestyle, if you're a surfer or, or military or whatever, like to not be capable of, getting put in a bad situation and having the self-control to get yourself out of it. Like you're basically just rolling the dice then every time you go by the water as far as yeah. that's concerned. So does that kind of answer that question? Yeah, no, that actually, that, that was more than, more than, you know, what I was expecting, but that's exactly what a lot of people understand is like increasing survivability is just honing in and developing better skills to be able to approach whatever exposures you're getting to. So at a higher intensity or when your heart rate spike, because let's say for instance, um, you know, you're, you're, fin gets tangled up in a kelp bed yeah but now you start sinking to the ground because you have no no way to kind of swim out of it um you know one of those things is all right my skills that i've developed prior to that from being exposed to it now lets me go ahead slow down right pull out my Word dive knife pull out my dive knife see where the problem's at cut myself free and then go ahead and swim up instead of freaking out and be like oh my god flailing underwater now you're just creating a whole bunch of other things while you're there. Now you're stuck both fins and all you and had to do was, exhausted. and you're exhausted now and you have no air because you're holding your breath for the past 30, 40 seconds. And it seemed like forever. Um, you know, I can actually relate to that big time, dude. I mean, when I, when I first joined the Marine Corps and, and, you know, got into the water and did that stuff. And when I went to become a recon Marine and all that good stuff, I didn't know exactly what I was getting into. You know, I didn't know, Oh, we're going to be in the water. Dude, I grew up in Texas. The only ocean that was from me was fucking, in Gulf where the water is warm. There was no waves. And if you walked in, you're getting stung by a jellyfish. Like that's all I knew. So you didn't go very much in the water. Um, luckily I was a lifeguard, you know, uh, during my high school time frame. But one thing we always say as recon Marines is Poseidus hates recon Marines. Cause whenever, whenever we got next to the water, the ocean just, and the surf just kicked up and it was like, all right, cool. The surf went from two to three feet to fucking nine feet. Now that we have to go ahead and do an insert with our ruck plus fins and a buddy good luck. <laughs> good luck and have fun um or even as a, an instructor you know at the schoolhouse we had to go through like our jet ski safety protocol work and all that great stuff and and you got put in situations where you know if there's a student in that situation and you have to jump in and you jump into that situation and you have to save them you're the one that has to stay calm and collected to be able to have and handle it so it's it's kind of understanding like i know exactly where you're coming from and it's awesome to know that we do have companies out there and coaches like you do or that are out there increasing survivability for people in the ocean because of the fact that the ocean is unforgiving. Yeah, totally. I mean, water, no, no water in general, <laughs> water in general is unforgiving. Um, you know, and it, it just, it's one of those things that I think that people don't, you know, really take advantage of the same thing with running. People don't take advantage of, of running. Revi running is a survivability skill. Absolutely. Being in the water and swimming is a survivable skill. And, and, and a lot of people don't do it. Right. And that's the reason why we see deaths all the time of drowning. Um, you know, and I'm pretty sure and those, those are preventable deaths. I just want to be clear about this. Like yeah. for, for me as a water safety instructor to, to hear that, that young men or women are, are dying in the training pipeline. Um, that, that like, I understand that it's going to happen no matter what in some particular instances, but the idea that, that guys are, are participating in stuff and not, not really acknowledging the risk that they're taking when they're doing it. Like that's, that's really, that's really unacceptable to me as a professional. Like I want to see those people understand, like, look, I know you view this as weakness, but this is a physiological reaction. Like we can condition you through this, but like they, they won't do that unless they understand that. You know what I mean? And yeah. I, I should clarify, I'm not being critical of the schoolhouses in this particular case. I'm being critical 
and holding us as individual athletes accountable for listening to the coaches, for listening to the professionals, because if we're not educating and if, or I'm sorry, if we are educating and they are not retaining, like they do have a responsibility. These, these are not easy jobs. This isn't McDonald's. Okay. Like you're not just showing up. Like the standards are higher here. Um, I just wanted to circle back on something real quick. Drowning is a compounding problem. And, and when we talk about it, like what the way it starts is you get a wave that hits you in the mouth when you don't expect it. You swallow just a little bit of water, but you're underwater when you gasp and then you fill your lungs up with water and now you're full of water with no air. So you're starting to sink. So when we talk about like these compounding problems, that is a positive feedback loop. Right. And positive feedback loops, as we know, are very uncommon in in human physiology. So we're trying to essentially create a negative feedback loop for people to allow them to. You can't stop that first wave from hitting you, but you can stop yourself from burning yourself out, overreacting to it and and separating from that cycle and re uh, retaking control. So. You know, I've actually had, I've actually been through that, uh, been through that, that loop before, you know, I, uh, what happened? I was an instructor, as an instructor at the schoolhouse, we were planning out for the recon challenge and I had to jump on the back of the, of the, the jet ski and the surf that morning at like 5 AM dude was outrageous up, uh, in trestles, you know, where trestles at off. Of yeah. Well, that's where we do. our insert. Yeah. And that's where we do our inserts for the recon challenge for everybody. So like when you're at a jet ski 5 AM in the morning, the sun's barely coming up and I'm, I'm on the back of the jet ski with one of with the other instructors and I'm holding on to this like big old buoy with the like a 20 pound weight because that's what we're going to go and mark it out (laughs) well we didn't see this wave come and it hits us and i get knocked off dude (laughs) i mean this is probably one of the most scariest near-death experiences that i've had in the ocean get knocked off dude and i'm in a i'm in a white in a white top i have my udt vest on i'm in like you know a a, a wetsuit and i have a helmet on and i have glasses on because i was like oh, i'm not gonna go in the water like it's you know and and i remember one always look cool yeah, but the thing is, though, is the sun was barely coming up, right? So the glasses were on because of the glare and everything else like that. I get knocked off, this, off the jet ski, dude. Boom, hit the water. I come up and look up. Well, I land, I, where we were at, we're in the middle of the break. Water hits me, dude. Wave hits me first time. And, like, I just go down. I just go limp. I just go limp, dude. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to let these waves take me and see what happens. And if whenever it's time to come up for air, I'm going to take a deep breath in and just let it take me. By the time I knew it, dude, like I was close on shore, able to stand up and I was like, oh my God, I'm alive. When that however many seconds I went from seeing the jet ski almost run my head over because I saw it in the surf tumbling, I hit my head at the bottom of the surf or the bottom of the beach break. I got tumbled, took in a whole bunch of water, but at the same time, I was able to just keep myself calm and collective going through it. And I'll never forget that experience, dude, because at the same time, it was like what you said, if I wasn't exposed to any of those exposures prior mentally I probably would not be able to handle it and I probably would be dead to this day. Right. Like, but it just, it just goes back to like, Oh my God, just stay patience, slow down, pick your spot. Right. You got to pick your spot. And and one thing I try to teach my athletes consistently is like, as we've said, the ocean does not give a damn. No ocean is bigger and better. And it's been here a lot longer than you and it'll be here long after you. And it has no problem eating you. (laughs) So what you have to do is, there's, there's no one can fight every wave, but there's always going to be a point in any wave where you can try and slip out and that composure to be underwater, to have sand and air and, you know, all the oxidation and all that crazy, you know, and the noise, we're not even talking about how loud it really is. is, It's crazy Um, to be able to like block all that stuff out and go, okay, this sucks, but one, two, three. Okay, there, there's my spot. And really picking it. And that, if you, if you get out, if you didn't kill you, right, it's going to make you a little bit stronger each yeah. time. And that's kind of that progression. That's, that's really, it's really exciting to see. There's nothing quite like having an athlete um, get pinned and see, see that face that they make when they come in that like, I don't want to ever go back out there again. And then to see them a session later, come out and have conquered that fear. And it's like, it's really cool to know that you are in your own small way, like helping somebody have access to this incredible resource because training in the ocean is like, I don't know. I don't know about you. I I grew up a a competitive swimmer all the way through college, like pools, 
pools are okay for some things, but I just think they're boring as hell. You know what I mean? I'd rather trail run than run on a track. So I'd much rather swim in the ocean yeah. than, than swim on land. Out of curiosity, when you went through your training pipelines, how much did you feel like they taught you about airway management and, and like ways to conserve energy and stuff like that? You know, I, I really didn't get a real in-depth uh, teaching of that all until I went through my highest level of swim qualification as an instructor, which was the Marine Corps Combat in, uh, in Survival Water or Instructor Water Survival. And, you know, they really honed in on like how to stay calm and collective and, and to really, you know, slow, smooth, smooth as fast, right? Like that's something, yeah, that, right. right? So slow and smooth um, was something that they really harped on. And if a student or someone was in the ocean and freaking out and they're, it, you know, your goal is to calm them down as fast as possible. Um, especially by any means necessary. By any means necessary. You, you know what I'm saying? And like, so if they're above water and they're freaking out, first off, they're not drowning. They're above water. You know, it's when you start seeing them sink under the water coming up and down is when we know they're drowning. And that's when you have to actually make it, make that instinct. But if they're above water, you know, that was one of the things. And then there's different types of swim strokes that they really harped on like utilizing. You combat know, side stroke. Combat side stroke. And the breast stroke was actually the one of the, the bigger one that they really harped on because of the fact it gave you a better visual of everything from your left to right lateral limits to you're able to control your air management better. Um, and you're actually able to control energy expenditure during your stroke. Um, yep. You know, you could either, and, and it was also one of those things where you could dive right deeper if you need to right away. You could stay above the water to keep your eyes, you know, peeled for whatever's going on. Um, it was all those kinds of things that they really harped on. The combat side stroke for us, you know, compared to what Buds teaches and whatever else, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a stroke for time. It was a survivability stroke to give you time from the breaststroke, you know, and then the backstroke was another big one they talked about. Just lay on your back and float, you know. Um, it's one of those things, you know, we look at babies, you teach them to put on their back and right away, what's the first thing to do when you turn on their back? They know how to float. Um, it's a survival skill, something that we, um, as human beings, as it's in our instinct to do it at all times. And it's kind of how, how you should do it. Just turn over and just kind of breathe and just float and kind of swim was one of those dudes. So that's kind of how they help with the survivability on that realm. Um, really because of the fact that we had to really work with these students and teach them as well. And it was cool to be able to take that and then teach as an instructor to the students in the schoolhouse and be like, look guys, this happens. And even too, did we used to shark students all the time to give them that same justification in the pool would be like, Hey, this might happen while you're in the ocean doing a hydrographic survey, <laughs> you know? And, and like, I cannot stress enough. Like you, you go from yellow to black on your like scale of, of uh, awareness. awareness. Yeah. You go from yellow to black when something you don't expect happens like that. Let me give you a perfect example. A couple of years ago I did, uh, I did this, this big swim to raise money for the Red Circle Foundation. And on one of my final training swims, I was swimming through a Kelpie area. Um, there'd been some whites in the area. I knew they were in the area. Uh, you know, you kind of you kind of prepare yourself like you may see something, you hope that you don't, and you try to stick to the areas where they can't get you. And uh, at one point, this wave picked me up and slammed me down. And it wasn't like I was near the shore. I was well offshore, so it wasn't a curling wave. It was just the, the change in depth of the water. And when I landed, it felt like I got hit on my left hip. Dang. And I like rolled away and like in the water, bubbles everywhere. And I'm feeling, I'm bringing my hand up and I'm looking for blood. And I'm, I'm like, oh my God, my hip's still there. What the fuck? Long story short, I got rocked onto a, uh, or thrown onto a rocky outcropping. Like oh, a wow. random spire of rock that was there in the water that was hidden by all of this kelp. Now, I know great whites don't hit through kelp. Right. I know that if you're in a kelp field, that's that's as close to safe as you're going to get in the water with them at that point. But in the moment, I wasn't thinking about the kelp field. I was thinking about the fact that I thought I just got hit by a shark. Yeah. Fast forward to the swim. Um, you know, there were there were plenty of times that they, I was swimming through areas uh, that were seal pupping grounds that were known places that, that whites pinged that day. Um, and there were dark shadows that I wasn't always able to identify. They might have been seals, they might have been dolphins, they might have been sharks. Um, but either way, I was that much more prepared to handle it. And I didn't have the subsequent elevated heart rate. I didn't flail in the water. I didn't send all of those nonverbal signals through the water to any seabound predator to come and check me out closer. I responded with recognize, acknowledge, process, move on. And 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 that is only possible by that that like. By training, you know what I mean? Like we, 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 everyone wants to be a badass. 
but not everyone's brain can handle that load right away. So sometimes that, that, regular and repeated exposure is, is super beneficial. And that's, that's cool, man. I love the fact that, you know, we talk about educating people, right? And I had a, I had a talk with yesterday with a good friend of mine, Bo Bergner, and we're talking about these podcasts, um, you know, the different podcasts we do, you know, and, you know, he was telling me how he's getting tired of podcasts because a lot of the stuff is just all we do is talk, you know, and he wants to hear something he's going to be able to learn from. And that's something that you're doing right now beautifully. I mean, we just talked about how when you're in the water, because we know that certain senses are taken down and other senses are raised. Yep. Right. And in the ocean, the senses that are raised are the heartbeat. Like, like that heartbeat puts out a signal to every single sea creature out there. And the most biggest and baddest sea creature out there that sees that that, that heart rate's elevated is going to take advantage of it because right away it knows what. It knows right. you're praying, you're fear, and you're scared. And what's one of the biggest fucking factors out in the ocean is a great white shark. <laughs> It doesn't get much worse than that. It doesn't get much worse than that, right? Um, so, you know, go over again. You said, what did you focus on again whenever you something like that happens? You, you recognize? Yeah, so if you, if you run into a sea predator, and I'm going to leave this nice and vague, um, the number one thing that is on your side is pre-education. And that's, that's that kind of to bring it back to that conservation element because by knowing the difference between what ag- aggravates or, or uh, triggers a tiger shark versus a great white versus a bull shark. Um, all three of those sharks have very different response patterns. They all look for different things. So if you don't know the difference, you don't want to do something that would work if it was a great white. Like what's the uh, Jurassic Park model? Like freeze, they don't know, they can't see if you yeah. can't move. It's like, well, what if that wasn't right? Like that yeah. would kind of suck for you. Um, so the first thing you do is recognize and identify the presence of a sea predator. Um, make a list of a mental quick list of, of possible egresses. At any time that you're training in the open ocean, you should constantly be obser- observing subsurface topography, um, you know, things present throughout the water column. You should be looking for these hints in advance so that, first of all, you're not surprised to see a shark. You've seen all of the pre-indicators, um, but also like you are staying relatively close to something like a kelp field or some type of a safe zone. So recognize, identify, plan your egress, and then move on from there. Sometimes a shark will swim past you and and just like not care. It's like, I just feasted on a seal. I'm gonna go, you know, ejaculate into the ocean to create sharks, however it is that they do it. You know what I mean? Like He's off to go jerk off and go to bed. He has no interest in you, but if you freak out, he might be like, well, you know, I might check him out a little bit. So yeah, that's, that's definitely the process, but pre-education and knowing what sea predators you can expect to see in the area, knowing if sea predators are commonly found in the area. And these are all, this is all information that's readily available through the Google machine, right? (laughs) If you, it doesn't take that much to look up an area and look up for the NOAA, um, look up the NOAA website. There are a lot of, of publicly available resources that, that relatively track these things. Don't ever go to a shark trafficking tracking website and think that that's real time where the sharks are. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, they're like two or three days behind, but like knowing, knowing what you might bump into so that that way, if you are a scuba diver and, and you know that there aren't a lot of seals in the area and you see something big out of the corner of your eye, then you can start to go through your emergency procedures and not waste time, uh, you know, trying to solve the invisible puzzle piece. Yeah, that's great, man. I think that's the best, the best piece of information we can pass off to people, especially that again, the ocean, because I mean, how many people like to just go in the water and play in the surf and are completely oblivious to anything that's going on around them. And it leads to what we just talked about, right? Oh, now that surprise effect. Oh, I'm surprised my elevated heart rate. And now the shark or whatever else is in there is going to end up coming and checking you out, even if they haven't eaten or eaten. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things you can take away from this. And it's, it's awesome, dude, that, you know, I've never really talked to anybody about this before. This is actually my first real deep in conversation about coastal survivability and how to handle things when it comes that way. So I'll tell you right now, bro, whenever I walk in the ocean, I'm fucking scared all the time. I, I am too. And, and you should be scared that we are not the dominant, like we are not at the top of the food column in that, in that venue. And, and I think that it's, it's good for you to be aware of it. I just want to clarify real quickly. I am not trying to demonize sharks. I think sharks are a vital part of the ocean. Oh yeah. And unfortunately, whenever I have these conversations with people, sometimes people will extrapolate it out to say, 
well, he's afraid of sharks. I'm not afraid of sharks. I'm also not afraid of bears or wolves or other natural predators. Um, they, we all serve a place within, within the ecosystem and being educated about what you are going to be exposed to is your responsibility. It is not the animal's responsibility to be educated about you. Yeah, no, that's true. It, uh, it, that's fucking perfect. Dude. That's, that's true. Like, you know, it's funny is we can learn so much from, from the animals. Yes. If we just look at them, um, you know, we look at, you know, we talk about the survivability, we keep going back to that. And I think it's a huge part of, you know, what you do in your programming, but we look back at it. Right. And what is the biggest, baddest predator in the water doing? Well, obviously it's the orca, right? Like that's, yeah. that's my, my spirit animal, if you will. Um, orcas are highly intelligent creatures. They have, uh, pods that are very specific. They have like uh, family pods, which have their own dialects and sometimes languages. Orcas display different hunting tendencies in different parts of the world from the same pod, which means that orcas are smart enough to recognize the techniques that work in the North Pole don't work in the South Pole. They're found in oceans all around the world. So what do they do? They stick together as a group. They communicate. They take care of their young until their young are capable of sustaining them on their, themselves on their own. I'm sounding like all of the hippies around me right now. Um, but it's, it's very much true. Like as watermen, as people of the sea, as people of the ocean with the experience that we have, we have a responsibility to bring along the next era of the pod and to teach them that not everything works the same in the same places. Atlantic waves break differently than Pacific waves because of the effects of wind and the rotation of the earth. Like, you know, these kinds of like minute details, not everyone needs to know it, but us as educators, us as, as the people bringing that next generation of, of warfighter, of lifeguard, of, of coastal person in, like we, we also must pass along the languages of our pods, if you will. Wow, that got really deep. Dude, that's <laughs> awesome. I fucking love it, bro. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. And you can, look at, you can look at the orca. And the reason, like, the reason why I brought that question, because I knew that's where it was going to go, because we've talked about it previously. And, you know, one of your, your, one of your old symbols when you were APA was an orca. Yeah, that was, right? uh, actually, that was my call sign um, okay. when I was in the military. Uh, I, if you guys are watching me on camera right now, I, I've taken great detail to make it look, make myself look as felt as possible. Um, I am not what you would call a six pack guy. I never looked like the majority of the people around me at the, uh, at the, at the pool, uh, for the Navy. But at the same time, uh, I was fast, uh, and I was undrownable. And, you know, I really, I really tried to take something that, that people made fun of me for in the beginning and tried to try to make it my battle armor, you know, and it worked out perfectly because it, the animal ended up kind of embodying everything that, that I, I believe in when it comes to the ocean. And, and you know, I even, I like to take it even deeper than that, dude. You can look at the orca and it actually goes deeper to like human life. You just said it yourself, right? Like the orca, they have their babies, they create their family, they have their own dialects, you know, they adapt to adverse conditions and adapt to un, un, unknown circumstances, unknown environments so that they're able to live. Well, what do we do as human beings and what do mammals do on, you know, the same exact thing and not every single mammal does it right? Not every single mammal does, yeah. you know, but we look at the orca that does do it. Like we do raise our, 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 we raise our young until they're ready to leave home and they're and all those crazy things. So it makes complete sense. Dude. And I think that's, that's a great way to approach it. And I think that's what you're, you know, you're doing really well right now with, you know, being able to provide this information and teach these guys, you know? So, you know, is there a way that people can actually just follow, like do a program online that they want to do, or they need to actually have it in person? You know, is that something that you've done before? Well, I think that it depends. I think that there's a big difference between somebody who's a lifeguard that's looking to train the way that we train here mm -hmm. remotely because those people who already have a certain level of proficiency or experience, like, it, yes, those people could definitely benefit from, from doing the drills or the techniques that we do. Um, but when it comes to being a beginner and getting in the water, there is no substitute for having qualified safety personnel by your side at all times. So I just want to Clarify this for everyone out there. You should never conduct any subsurface training activity, be it underwater sprints, be it breath holds, be it grappling, anything, without qualified safety and rescue personnel on hand at all times. It's not you being a pansy. It's your body overriding your brain. So um, if, you, if you're new to the sea, there, there are programs all around the country, but we, we try to offer something. I mean, we're only a two-hour drive away from San Francisco, an hour 
away from San Jose. So we've had people come in for the weekend before for classes, and uh, that's something we're definitely interested in doing in the future. But if you're looking to train that way, definitely get on board with a coach who can develop a program that will not only take into consideration um, the individual, quote unquote, individual demands of, of your area. So if you're working on a river, it's very different than working on a surf beach, very different than working on a bay beach. Um, but sharing, sharing the knowledge, getting it out there and getting as many of your fellow lifeguards or people of that ilk uh, training with you because we need, to, we need to increase the connection amongst our communities across the country because the only way we, we share best practices, like softly, you know, uh, me talking with you, you talking with me, this is only possible because we reached out to each other and, and said, look, we've got a lot of things that, that we're trying to do the same. So uh, I would really hope to, to see that in the future out of all of us. Yeah, man, that's awesome, dude. And, and I couldn't thank you anymore for coming on and, sh and sharing your experiences, not just in the military, but how you're actually training and coaching athletes now to this day and really educating people on the survivability. I'm going to use that word like crazy because survivability oh. is a fucking – I think survivability is probably is the most important. Word. It is a great word, right? Like it's it. I look at that word and the, there's so many things that come to me for it. And, you know, and you're utilizing it in one of the greatest ways possible of educating people for the ocean. Um, because we're not that main, we're not that main predator in there. You know, we're the smallest thing in the food chain. So if we can take care of ourselves and like you talked about, recognize and create some kind of egress and make sure you know what's going on and stay mentally there when it is the shit hits the fan you know, we're just going to help keep people alive longer um, at the end of the day, especially whenever they go into the water. And, you know, at the same time, it, it, we talk about how it sounds hippie, but at the same time, people don't go in the water because they're afraid of things. Exactly. And then they don't participate or donate to, to those types of conservation platforms. And so sometimes the ocean kind of gets left in the lurch. Yeah, dude. It's crazy, man. I was, uh, I took my daughter to an aquarium, the, the aquarium down here in San Diego. And they're actually doing this cool thing right now and I want to look it up, but they are talking about how the ocean, uh, deep down in the ocean, like deep down, dude, like way down there, they have these like lights that there's just so much energy down there that create these power of like lights from movement. That's cool. Yeah. It was really wow. cool. Right. Like, so like the, the, the lights or whatever else in there were created by movement and by energy. Yeah. Kinetic force created the, uh, created the energy. That's really cool. Yeah. So like you walk into this dark room and all of a sudden as you start walking, these lights just start kind of like coming up, like, oh, from they're like illuminating. Yeah. It's like through your energy. So everyone is different and maybe, maybe it is just one of those things where it's just like they have like a rotation, but it's giving the understanding like this is how powerful the ocean is. Yeah. <laughs> and like and, and once we, like we haven't even begun to tap the, the, the element like the resource itself, like it's 70% of the world's surface, but it also generates wind. It also is responsible for the majority of carbon dioxide processing and all types of like, I don't want to get too deep into well, it. It's funny, bro. It's like, uh, I took a class on oceanography actually. And when I was going to school, when I got out of the Marine Corps, it, it interests me. I mean, awesome, dude, it's fucking great. So like the listeners, like how the fuck does he know? Like somewhat of a knowledge about the ocean. It's well, I was able to take a course on it during, during the college when I went. And it's, it was probably one of the coolest fucking classes that I got to take and learn. And that's why I'm so like interested in like hearing about it, especially from someone who teaches students how to do it and like how to survive in it and do all those things. And I think it was a great idea, you know, with sharing this for everybody else. Yeah. I mean, it's all about, our job is all about removing barriers to entry and participation, right? So by doing what you guys do at Softly, you are finding ways to reduce the cost of access to all of these experts so that more people can benefit from your guys's information. Yeah. We're trying to do the same thing here with the ocean. The less obstacles that people perceive between themselves and the ability to participate in a state park, um, you know, then we're not as likely to lose the funding for our state parks. Yeah. Then we're not as likely to have a hard time filling certain positions within those organizations. So, you know, we have, we have a custodial duty to, to take care of this world and, you know, and, and especially, especially the sea. And I would just really like to mention real quick before we go, uh, have you ever heard of one more wave before? I've heard of it before, but never really looked into it. I just want to shout these guys out real quickly. One more wave is really pushing, really pushing the, the idea of using ocean therapy as a solution for veterans with disabilities okay. and PTSD. Um, you know, I, I live with uh, some permanent disability as a direct result of my spinal injury while I was in the Navy. And they, uh, they've helped, they're helping me get back out on the water. These guys are all about empowering people to find a solution outside of pharmacology 
that not only gets them active in their communities, but gets them physically active and gets them emotionally connected and engaged again. So um, just wanted to shout out oh, one yeah, dude. those guys are killing it. And then uh, CTS up in Napa, California, I'm sure you know, uh, I don't know when this is going to air, but the Napa fires were pretty devastating in Napa and Sonoma counties and Fairfield counties. CTS Fitness is uh, setting up a fundraiser. If you guys want more information on that, you can come check any of our social media channels. We are going to be promoting uh, North Bay Fire Recovery Services and and uh, events for the next three months to try and help them get back on their feet. So, Oh, yeah, dude. Perfect, man. Again, man, thank you again for your time, man. I appreciate it. It was an awesome, awesome conversation. I'm looking forward to, you know, having some more of these. Definitely, dude. Um, yeah, this was great. Thank you so much, George, for having me on. And, yeah. and thank you again to Softweet for doing what you guys are doing and, and really providing people with, with educated and, and prepared approaches to fitness, not just creating PDFs for people based off of what you heard or what you learned. So really, really respect what you guys are doing. And uh, remember, guys, if you want to check me out, I'm on Instagram at Coastal Athlete Program. You can find me online at CoastalAthleteProgram.com. And you can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Coastal Athlete Program. And then also, too, real quick, you are actually now also the host of another podcast, correct? Yes, thank you. So, yeah, I just want, to, just want to put that. So, if you guys want to continue hearing more from George um, and hearing what he has to do with other people that he's working with in the military, not just that, but the tactical and the tactile realm of everything else, you know, um, look over it. Is it Tactical Athlete Radio? Yeah, you can find us on uh, Instagram at TAC Athlete Radio, at TAC Athlete Radio. We are Tactical Athlete Radio podcast in the iTunes Pod Center. And Tactical Athlete Radio is a bi-monthly podcast or bi-weekly podcast. And Jason breaks down a lot of the publications that are coming out in the TSAC journal. Jason gets into the exercise science stuff. I am a little bit more of the uh, talking shit kind of guy. We're going to be joking around talking about uh, what our athletes are doing both in the water, in college, in the military. And uh, like I said, give us a like, give us a follow. Yeah. We really appreciate you giving us an opportunity to uh, promote ourselves like that. Yeah, definitely, dude. Yeah, man. Always sharing the knowledge and creating a, a bigger and a bigger, better culture and environment for sure, dude. So thanks again, man. And I appreciate it, man. Great. Thank you.